Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. This symposium and panel discussion, recorded on June 1st, 2013, at the National Gallery of Art, honored the exhibition Diaghilev and the Ballet Russe, 1909-1929, when art danced with music, on view from May 12th to September 2nd, 2013. The exhibition draws upon a 2010 exhibition at the Victoria and Albert Museum, the V&A, and draws upon some 80 works from the V&A's renowned collection of dance artifacts and adds about 50 objects generously offered by more than 20 lenders, private and public. The Ballet Russe, the most innovative dance company of the 20th century, propelled the performing arts to new heights through groundbreaking collaborations between artists, composers, choreographers, dancers, and fashion designers. Founded by Russian impresario Serge Diaghilev in Paris in 1909, the company combined Russian and Western traditions with a healthy dose of modernism, thrilling and shocking audiences with its powerful fusion of choreography, music, and design. In the second lecture, Anna Weinstein, executive director of the Ballet Russe Cultural Partnership, discusses the first American tour of the Ballet Russe. So I, my, my story here is, um, it's, it's something, it's material that I'm working on, and it's not sort of a, you know, conclusive, comprehensive sort of picture, but I'd like to talk to you about three episodes in the uh, fateful 1916 tour um, of the Ballet Russe to the U.S., uh, all of them in the first sort of phase of the tour, in the, in the first tour, basically, before the Ballet Russe came back in the fall of 1916. And um, so the most familiar... Uh, Oh, wait a second. Let's see. Okay. The most familiar episode, uh, legal episode, that, you know, pops up in um, the histories are, is the obscenity case that uh, occurred in, um, in New York when the, the Ballet Russe first arrived in the U.S., and um, it, historically, uh, many scholars and Douglas himself sort of saw this as an example of sort of America's uncouth response uh, to the ballet. But uh, I think that's, that's not really a, a very accurate picture of the situation. Um, so I'll, I'll recount to you a little bit of what happened and um, talk, talk a bit about that um, in the context of what else had gone on in terms of sort of censorship in the U.S. Um, of dance. And and then I will talk about two other, uh, one really large and extensive case that has not been talked about at all, which was a, a lawsuit filed against Dagula for breach of contract by one of his leading dancers, Ksenia Maklitsova. And then I'll talk a little bit about the clashes, the legal wrangling clashes uh, with Nijinsky that occurred when Nijinsky finally made his way over to the U.S. in April and rejoined the company when they came back to, to perform it in New York at the Metropolitan Opera House. Um, so what happened with the, the obscenity case is that basically um, the police department in New York received a number of letters complaining of the moral tone of uh, La Premedie d'Anfon and Scheherazade, um, and um, in addition to which actually the Catholic theater movement, uh, a, a sort of a group formed to censor theatrical entertainments um, by issuing a whitelist of approved ones, sort of issued a bulletin condemning the... Um, uh, contaminating the Ballet Russe uh, performances, particularly, of, again, of Fona Scheherazade. And what happened was that Dagilev, uh got very unwillingly um, pulled in front of a magistrate's court um, when the Met, uh, actually, John Brown being the business manager, he's right there, of, of the Met, received a letter from the uh, deputy commissioner of the police department requiring them to turn up in court and report to a chief magistrate. 
um, to, and the police had also visited the performances of the, of the Belarus and sort of had found enough reason to have concern. Um, so basically, um, when Dagulev came to came in front of the magistrate, um, he really took a, took the position that this was sort of a ludicrous thing that he'd be brought in to answer about this, and that Fauna um, had been performed numerous times in the principal cities of Europe for the you know emperors and queens. And what's interesting is that whereas later, in terms of how he spoke about America and about uh, and how scholars sort of took up the idea, whereas later he sort of talked about, again, that the audiences had not really been receptive and had recognized he actually used the argument in front of the oh, sorry in front of the um, in front of the magistrate that actually it was the public's reception which actually had been you know pretty good um, that indicated that th- these ballets did not really go against uh, the prevailing taste uh, of the time and but nevertheless um, basically he was forced to comply by the by the interests of the Metropolitan Opera House, who did not want to be at odds with the uh, with the chief magistrate. And um, I, I'll talk in, in a little bit about how how the the ballets were modified. But what's also interesting is that there was a, a sort of there was a, a an interesting earlier parallel episode um, that had occurred with. Gertrude Hoffman, who um, in the early 1910s presented pirated productions uh, of the of Belarus ballets, including Scheherazade, and she'd managed actually to present them without partic- any particular public outcry. And so it's kind of interesting that when Dagulev uh, brought the Belarus to the U.S., that suddenly Scheherazade did present problems. But she had also run afoul of the censors because she had, er- a little bit earlier, in 1909, she'd been performing sort of a production, you know, inspired by Salome. And it, what's interesting is that somehow after having managed to perform her Salome dances 400 times around the country, uh, including seven months in New York, she was suddenly uh, and very unexpectedly arrested by the police for, for violating some section of the penal code for obscenity. So um, this was not so unprecedented, um, and it was not just because of the, sort of the novelty of the ballet ruse that uh, they ran afoul of the... Um, uh, of, of the sort of the the, the police um, and um, in fact uh, he Daglov was not arrested as as Hoffman was um, but sort of brought in in a more civilized way um, in the end what happened was that um, and what I must say is that again in term, historically people have talked about the concern that um, Scheherazade may have been primarily uh, aroused by the mixing of black and white and the harem scene but it seems like that really it may, it may have been part of it um, but it wasn't the the, the the limit of of what the issues were, and certainly Fawn seems to have been uh, as much of an offending culprit um, and so rather than that uh, Pretty powerful gesture of the of the fawn making love to the scarf at the very end of the um, uh, of the ballet. Um, the uh, De- you know Daglev had to have uh, was forced to sort of have the uh, ending modified so so that you know instead the as you can see up in the quote um, 
the uh, the fawn just sort of looked at the scarf and um, at the end of the first performance of uh, this sort of expurgated uh, version of Fawn, Dagulov came smiling from a seat towards the managers of the Metropolitan Opera and said, in French, America is saved. And I think that that gesture was actually not just meant for sort of American audiences and the press. It was really sort of a, a prod back to John Brown, the financial controller, and some of the other managers who had sort of forced him to make this change. And, and it said that Diaghilev had, and, and even an article said that Diaghilev had modified the ballet under protest. Um, he also said very amusingly that he wasn't sure how he was going to deal with modifying Scheherazade because he couldn't make and a, a fair and a harem uh, into a pink tea because at that time there was a fashion for having sort of teas in, in sort of all one kind of color scheme, if you will. Um, but one, one thing that's very interesting that Carl van Vechten writes, a critic of the time who had seen the Ballet Russe in Europe, um, he wrote in his impressions of Nijinsky performing in the U.S., whom he'd also seen in Europe, he, he felt that he, he literally started his article when Dagolev brought the dregs of the Ballet Russe to America. And the thing is that uh, what may have been a, prov- a provoking factor uh, Vechten felt in the obscenity charges against Scheherazade was the lack of artfulness in how it was performed before Nijinsky turned up, both in terms of the, the lead interpreters, but also um, because uh, Vechten and many other critics felt that once Nijinsky came, he got the whole ballet in order. He sort of you know, cleaned up the, the productions, not only of his own work, Works like Fawn, and it's very interesting because uh, Nijinsky really objected to having to modify, uh, having to modify that final portion in Fawn, and somehow eventually also managed to get around that. But he also complained about the fact that Fawn had been pre- presented without his permission and in ways that he had not sort of sanctioned. Um, so Van Vechten argued that um, what when Nijinsky sort of came and and um, put the whole company sort of in order artistically and gave his own interpretation to the role of the golden slave that his much more vivid and sensual um, interpretation did not actually run afoul of audiences and censors because of the high degree of art and because the aestheticism of the experience sort of um, completely sort of uh, took away any feelings of disgust and moral outrage that might have otherwise happened. Um, now, an- another interesting thing about the uh, moving on to the case with Zenia Maklatsova, um, it's, it's important to understand that the American episode of the Ballet Russe is a very important sort of transitional one because what had happened is that a, a large portion of the troupe that had been formed in the run-up to World War I had dispersed and Diaghilev really had to recombine, had to seek out a lot of new uh, performers. He lost sort of, he wasn't able to have most of his key stars on the tour and he had to sort of improvise and that's why, that's part of why Van Vechten said that he had brought the dregs of the Ballet Russe to uh, America but at the same time it was, a, it was an opportunity for him to sort of consolidate his control of the company and Gregoriev, looking back at this episode, you know, commented that Daglov's success in launching this new company without the former stars, Karsavina, Fokin, and Nijinsky, I mean, even though Nijinsky did turn up towards the end of the tour, uh, all, you know, the, the Ballet Russe spent almost three months in the U.S. without him, um, performing reasonably successfully. 
And that, so, so that uh, this was, uh, Grigoryev, of course, being a great admirer and a long-time collaborator of Diaghilev, he sort of looked on this positively, but it wasn't a positive phenomenon for many people, including most of the dancers who, in the course of the American episode, got paid less and less. And where, through this episode, because he discovered a lot of new talents, he was able to sort of change how he dealt with his stars and um, the, sort of t- took away some of their central uh, central contribution to the to the success of the company. So he created and he was able to sort of centralize control so that in the future um, none of the stars were as intrinsic and as as vital to the organization as he himself was, which wasn't entirely the case um, before before World War One. And so. Um, Fokin hadn't been unwilling to come out to the U.S., uh, uh, and Karsavina was unable to because she was pregnant, and that had left, uh, and Nizhinsky was stuck in Austria with Diaghilev pulling strings to get him out, and that left Diaghilev in a bind because all three had been actually promised to American audiences, and uh, expectations had been very strongly formed, and he was literally without leading ladies. Um, and so Grigoryev was dispatched to Russia to look for all sorts of dancers, stars, and, and supporting dancers. And um, Xenia Maklesova, who was hired in Moscow, was really sort of a, 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 a not a not a top choice at all. Um, she was hired in part because Olga Spasivtseva was a much better uh, and well better known uh, ballerina in Mariinsky said sort of first tended towards coming and then d- decided she didn't want to come. And uh, so Grigoria found Maklitsova. She was willing to come, but clearly Dagilov wasn't terribly excited about the idea because, you know, so continue looking for somebody else, but failing that engaged Maklitsova. So she was really a, a, a very much a second choice. And after she was hired, um, Dagilov learned from Otto Kahn that Lydia Lopakova, who was already in the U.S., having come there um, in very soon after her first season with the Ballet Russe in Europe and having performed there for about five years, that Lopakova was actually willing to rejoin the company. Um, Maklitsova herself is an interesting character because she was a graduate of the Bolshoi Ballet School and performed initially at the Bolshoi and then started sort of touring to Petersburg and basically trying to transfer herself to the Mariinsky, but um, she would study with different teachers and she would want to perform different things and she was always pushing for new roles, so she was very ambitious and she didn't want to, she didn't really want to play by the familiar bureaucratic rules of the imperial theaters and I think that that's why she saw the opportunity to dance for Dagilev as an opportunity to get out of that uh, stifling system and to, um, you know, she she had an enormous drive. I mean, she sort of put on solo performances. She sort of danced wherever she could. She always pushed for new opportunities, um, much, and it never resorted to the kind of protectionism that some other dancers did, where they found themselves a, a lover who would advance them. She was really very a very driven individual, and um, there there were different critical opinions of her dancing, but um, they tended to admit that she had great technical skill and. In the run-up to you know the 1916 episode uh, in in the U.S., um, the um, critics seemed to be think, feeling that she was making artistic progress as well. Um, so she signed a contract with Dagilov on September 18, 1915. She was supposed to perform with the troupe for two, twice in Geneva and Paris, and then really the focus of it was the U.S. engagement, and that was supposed to run from January 18th to May 1st, 1916. It was a 
payments stipulated. I, I'm getting into the details of this a little bit because what she ended up having was a, a major contract dispute with Dagilev. Um, and um, as I'd mentioned, Lopakova uh, was uh, was brought in um, in sort of afterwards and in parallel. And when um, it, a lot of the memoirs um, of of the time of Lydia Sokolova and Grigoriev sort of talk about Maklitsova being jealous of Lopakova um, and sort of dismissing and that causing the rift and causing her to walk out on the company. But that was really, uh, again, a picture that was sort of... Uh, promulgated partially by Dagilev, and that is not substantiated at all by the court records. And once one looks at what actually happened, um, she, she, was, she was just very, um, she was very unwilling to be manipulated and very insistent on her rights w- within the law, according to our contract, and also on her rights as a star. Um, so the trouble began when uh, Dagilev uh, wanted Maklasova to dance on the opening night, which was January 17th, and thus not stipulated in her contract, and she demanded that he pay her extra, which uh, he wasn't terribly excited about, but he did do. And um, in the early days, um, Maklitsova, more so than Lopakova, was the one who was sort of promoted who was the, the, the key uh, sort of leading female dancer who was promoted and, um, you know, magazines like this one. Um, and she actually did very well with the U.S. press, and she had some interesting comments. She spoke quite eloquently about the arts requiring government funding and investment, talked about the education of the body, talked about taking class with Shaketi. So she really held her own. Um, but what happened, and, and this is an interesting critic, critic sort of assessment of her dancing on that opening night, uh, for which Degelev had to pay her extra. Um, but, you know, the critic wasn't terribly impressed with either her or Massine. Um, so the thing is that um, the ballet in which she's per- depicted here, La Princesse Enchantée, ended up being the sort of central issue to the conflict between uh, Dagilev and Maklitsova because it was not stipulated in her contract. Her contract said very precisely which ballet she was to dance, and it did not include this one. Now, there was a, uh, an, ex- an addendum added to the contract um, that was not signed by either party um, that uh, Dagilev claimed she had verbally agreed to, and she didn't deny that she had been willing to perform the piece as needed, um, as she did uh, in in New York on the opening night, and as she later did in Boston, which was the first city that the the company went to after New York, um, but the the issue of whether she had formally agreed to perform systematically Princess Enchante was one of the the cruxes of the uh, of the lawsuit. Um, so what happened was that after the uh, the New York tour, the, the ballet went to Boston, and on the opening night there. Um, uh, Maklitsova did perform in La Princesse Enchante, but she hurt her toe, and she performed um, she performed that with Bolm, and Bolm and Massine were considered the two main men uh, stars of the company at that point before Nijinsky's arrival. And Dagilev, who had a tendency to announce programs, uh, you know, which performance, which ballets would be produced on which night, very last minute, um, and not even. W- particularly properly warn his dancers about it. Um, So after the opening night, uh, he suddenly announced that the following night, um, uh, um, Maklesova was to dance Princess Enchantée 
again, and to do, that she would have to do so with Alexander Gavrilov, who we see here, who was a, really a dancer of the corps de ballet that was by force of necessity, by the lack of sort of star dancers, promoted on the, in the course of this tour to dancing certain leading roles. And um, uh, Maklitsova basically refused to dance with Gavrilov, uh, she said that she would be willing to dance with Gavrilov only if she was paid extra. And um, they, they had, Diaghilev brought a lawyer to see her, and they had, uh, but she had also lawyered up. She'd consulted a lawyer on this front already. And um, they basically had an, an all-out discussion um, where Dagilev uh, felt that she had, A, a consented to dance Princess Enchante uh, both verbally and by the fact of her having performed it, and that he had the right as uh, you know, the head of the company to order her to dance with whoever she wished to, and, and the contract did not stipulate who she was to dance with. But her feeling was that she would only dance the piece with Bolm or Massine because they were the ones with whom she had rehearsed it, and because it was a, a dangerous. Um, uh, it was a, it was a piece that had a lot of complex um, leaps and, and jumps and lifts. She was afraid that working with an inexperienced partner, one who was not at the level appropriate level of sophistication, she would run. She would be at risk to hurt herself more. And she felt that she wasn't really obliged to perform uh, the the ballet in the ballet at all because it wasn't part of her contract. And she knew that because the uh, any agreement to perform it had been verbal, she wouldn't be forced to. Now, this escalated in the course of the conversation to a situation in which Dagilev said that he ordered her as her director to perform it. Um, and uh, the, they're, they're, it's very funny in the court records, there are sort of different witnesses recounted different aspects of it, but the, the sum and gist of it was that. Um, he, he, he told her that he was her director. She said, no, you're not my director. And in fact, um, before he said, the, well, what am I? Uh, she said, my director is Gorsky, of the Imperial, who was the director of the Imperial Theaters in Moscow. And then he said, well, what am I? And she said, oh, you're an entrepreneur. At which point, Dagilev stormed out and refused to talk to her. And the following night, on the third night in Boston, when she came to the Opera House to perform, Boston Opera House, where the, the troupe was performing, to, to, to you know get into makeup and get ready for the stage, uh, there were two policemen waiting there. Uh, to, she was f- kept out of the theater. She was prevented from performing. And that was how Dagulov sort of pushed her out of the troupe, which was in some ways advantageous to him at this time um, because uh, Lopakova was more popular with the audiences than Makletsova. He had his he had this new leading lady in place. He didn't want to deal with Makletsova. And because she really, he, she, according to him, she stirred up dissension in the troop, which she really did because she was showing them an example of resisting Dagilev. Um, she was not somebody who uh, incited anybody else to sort of any revolutionary activities, but she just stood up for herself, and he didn't want that around. Um, now, what, what then ensued um, was that... Um, Basically, she she went back to New York. Um, she wasn't able to get any other employment, um, and she filed suit against Dagilev in early March um, for ten thousand dollars for uh, preventing her from 
carrying out the contract. Dagliff countersued for breach of contract, uh, claiming that she had refused to fulfill her obligations on the contract. And the uh, in early April, arguments began, and very quickly um, the, the the issue was examined on all sides. And very interesting things come out about Dagliff's management style of the tr- of the troop, which I just don't have time to get into today. Um, and um, Miklisovo was awarded a $4,500 judgment against Dagulev, um for the unpaid, remaining unpaid amount from the contract. And furthermore, the, the case was challenged but ended up going to the Supreme Judicial Court in Massachusetts, um, in fact, because there was sort of different uh, interpretations of how much she should be entitled to under the terms of the contract because of an uh, annulment clause as well. But basically, the the court the court found um, that uh, Dagulev that she had in fact been willing to dance, uh, but she was within her rights to say that she was not willing to perform when it would put her at risk, at physically at risk, when she so she, she had that Dagulev had no right to order her to perform with an what somebody and a partner that she felt was unsafe and incompetent, and that by actively preventing her from undertaking her duties according to the contract, he had in fact breached it. Um, but in the end, um, this this didn't. I mean, Maklitsova was gone, and it's very interesting because in the memoirs of fellow dancers, they kind of didn't really see it from this angle. They sort of just focused on her supposed jealousy of Lopakova, and they didn't really. Um, actually take up the example of a resistance to Dagulev. Um, and in fact, the only person who was able to resist Dagulev in this period was Lopakova herself, um, who um, Sokolova remembered uh, as somebody who had, much as she admired and, and cared for Dagulev, had not sold her soul to him and was worth her weight in gold in terms of her, her ability to stand up to him. Um, so just moving on quickly, because I do want to um, uh, talk a little bit briefly about Nijinsky's story. And it's very interesting because Nijinsky arrived on April 7th in New York, and um, the Maklitsova case had been in the papers from February onwards and was actually, arguments began on April 12th. So it was something that was very much in the air exactly when uh, Nijinsky arrived. And the interesting thing here was that even though Dagulev had, and Otto Kahn had exerted great efforts to extract him out of Austria, they had not pre-negotiated any kind of contract with him. And, of course, Nijinsky had a rather complicated contractual history with Dagulev, um, uh, stemming from the period uh, of the, uh, before his dismissal in 1913, during which time he felt that Dagulev had not paid him what was due to him according to his contract. And there had actually been an ongoing lawsuit in England, in the courts in England, that uh, Dagulev had lost but had not paid out to Nijinsky on. So what's clear is that when, when Nijinsky arrived, um, he started making terms and um, he felt that Dagulev... Um, and John Brown were not um, offering him uh, conditions that were suitable to his standing as an artist. And there was a a large component of it. It was not just purely financial, even though he had quite considerable financial demands, but it was also artistic because he saw the state that the company had gotten to, and he was extremely disappointed both with how his ballet, Fawn, was being done and how the Falken ballets were being produced. And so, you know, in in an extensive interview he gave to the papers on April 18th, and this is very much supported by later coverage and ongoing. I mean, it's really clear that the artistic demands were as important as the financial demands, although the Dagulev camp went into sort of PR war with 
with um, Nijinsky, as in fact you know had been intimated uh, uh, to him. Uh, actually, I think that's in the next paragraph. They during the negotiations they told him that if he didn't dance, it would damage him with the American public, and they and they did start a sort of PR campaign to try to paint him as an unwilling, uh, sort of ungrateful sod. Um, but um, as you can see here, um, he he was very concerned about uh, the way that fawn was being produced and um, about the folk and ballets, and um, he uh, and and he was not hesitant to speak also about the the, the past problems. And basically, the thing is that. Um, uh, Nijinsky was at this point the only person in the company who had enough clout um, uh, politically, artistically, and so on and so forth to stand up in any way to Dagulev. And in in fact, um, even though there was sort of some wrangling, Dagulev didn't really have much choice but to find a resolution with Nijinsky, and it is suspected it is supposed that part of that resolution was a very quiet effort by Otto Kahn to actually pay out to Nijinsky what Dagulev had owed him for previous performances, um, and uh, which, um, well, I'll skip this, but this, that had sort of been, uh, in, that the pursuit for which money had been instigated by Nijinsky's marriage to Romola. Um, and the, what's interesting is that after... Um, uh, even after uh, a contract was signed and Nijinsky began performing with the company, um, there continued to be uh, friction. So, for example, uh, again, on the issue of Fawn, um, Nijinsky wanted Flora Ravales to be performing uh, the, the leading female role in it, and Dagulev insisted that Chernyshova uh, stay in that role, as a result of which, in the last uh, week of the Belarus engagement in April uh, 1916 at the Metropolitan Opera House, Fawn was taken off the bill entirely. Um, so there was this sort of, this period of wrangling for who was in charge, and the res- the, it's interesting that the result was that actually, that Nijinsky gained, was given given control of the company at Autocon's insistence, and Diaghilev went back to Europe um, knowing that on the second tour in the U.S., uh, Nijinsky would be in exclusive control, and that this is pay- is, has been sort of historically painted as sort of part of Nijinsky's mania, but I think that it was really his response to his feeling that Diaghilev was un- in an unacceptable way interfering with the artistic uh, and production sides of the the, the company and um, many critics uh, who who observed the Ballyrus performances after Nijinsky's arrival on the first tour recorded that really he it wasn't just he as a performer who brought something new to the company but that the company itself was transformed by his work with them and um, so uh, it's interesting that in um, uh, okay, uh, in uh, in July 1916, um, it was finally al- announced through uh, again through um, Nishinsky's lawyer that um, he would be taking charge of the troupe in the forthcoming fall tour. And um, it, you know, it's inter- in some sense Nishinsky sort of won this particular battle. And one has to wonder why Otto Kahn allowed him. Uh, to be given control despite the, the everybody's sort of warnings about Nijinsky's instability and, and what might ensue with 
the absence of both Diaghilev and Grigoriev. And um, I think that it must have been in part because of what he had witnessed in terms of um, how Daglev dealt both with uh, with the two earlier uh, court cases, with the Maklitsova situation, with the obscenity case, how he comported himself also with uh, the um, the staff of the Metropolitan Opera House, and that basically um, he there had been this considerable cultural clash, and that uh, it was it was this and not the um, the sort of inhospitability of the U.S. for, for the Ballet Russe that led to um, Otto Kahn's decision to sort of turn over the troop to Nijinsky in, for the fall. Um, so this is just some, uh, some interesting episodes and uh, that I think sh- shed light on some aspects of Daglov's management of the troop and its evolution um, that I hope to continue to elaborate into a, a lengthier study um, in the future. Thank you for your attention. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.